thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, welcome back to the Real Food Reel. Today on the show we have our good friend Cal Brock who has been on the Real Food Reel a number of times and is our resident gut health guru. Recently, Kale has released his latest book, The Gut Healing Protocol, which is an eight-week holistic guide to rebalancing your gut. And I've got Kale on the show today to share with you this project. Um, obviously, the success stories that we've already seen um, via Kale's website and social media, but all about how you can heal your gut. Hi, Kale, and thanks for your time today. Ah, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Steph. It's always good to be on the the Real Food Reel. Yeah, it's awesome to have you back and I've been following the the gut healing protocol, you know, throughout your sort of pre-launch and obviously what's happened in the last two weeks has been quite the boom with sales and, you know, a really great response, which I think is the, the point of you, you know, sharing this this resource with us. Start for me as to why you really felt like you wanted to write this book, where it sort of began. This actually began when I was 16. So um, some of you guys might have heard my story when I was 16. I was diagnosed with the heart condition, supraventricular tachycardia. The doctor said, look, we've got to go inside you. We're going to burn away a piece of the heart that's malfunctioning. And I thought that's sort of illogical. So I'll go down a different route and learn holistic health principles. And it was funny because a lot of people tend to do the rounds a lot when they get into health until they find something that works for them, whereas I actually found something straight away and I was taught something straight away by a very good um, natural therapist here in Adelaide. And everything worked really well, but then I thought, hey, I've got to do the rounds because I've got to see what else is out there. So I did all this research and it all ended up pointing back to where I started and that was that the gut was the most important thing to look at. And I suppose now, over the past sort of um, 10 years or so, we've seen a huge, uh, not a resurgence, but a huge sort of focus on the gut and the microbiome. You know, we're seeing books written, we're seeing research articles uh, and monumental research um, projects being done by, you know, the British Gut Project and the American Gut Project. And I had all this knowledge on the gut and I thought, you know, I've I've got to share this in a in a holistic, step by step, comprehensive way because I know this. It's all in my head, and nowadays there's a lot of science stuff to back it up. So I'm going to get all that research. I'm going to put it into my own words, and I'm going to share it with people. And I think because I'd been sort of implementing this program with clients as a health coach for quite a long time without actually getting it down in a in a nice sort of story. And uh, I thought, hey, why not? Let, let's turn it into a book and that way I can have a sort of one-stop shop for anyone who asks me about their gut health, which is really about everything, you know, their health in general. Um, it's a one-stop shop for them, to, for them to go to and check it out. So, yeah, I wanted to write it in that. And I wanted to write it in my own voice. You know, I'm passionate about telling stories and stuff. So I wanted to put it in a nice way that people can enjoy and with some, with some recipes as well. So that was how, how that all came about. Yeah, I think it's a really cool way to approach the topic because 
like you say, there is this huge emergence on the topic, but some of it can be quite overwhelming for people. I think, you know, it what you are so good at doing is breaking it down to help everyone, whether they've got, you know, a, a large amount of education or they're a doctor that you might work with, whether they're someone that's new to real food and might only just be diving into gut health as a as an approach. That's really my job is, yeah. is, is to, yeah, is to just break down probably a little bit over complicated issues and try and bring them back to a logical standpoint. I think that's my job across everything, not just health. It's just life in general. You know, we could talk about happiness and all this sort of stuff. My whole approach to to health and life has always been okay. Well, where does this come back to? What what are the fundamental principles behind this and the reasons for X X Y Z? And let's focus on those because they're going to give us the biggest outcomes. And that's what it's been with with the gut. And you know, I found that applying simple basic principles of gut health can have massive impacts on your life. And that's why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, amazing. So within the book, you mentioned the four main functions of the microbiome. Can we just have a brief chat about those to sort of set the scene, perhaps for those that don't understand the significance of gut health, these four points really bring that home? They do. There are four main pillars of gut health. Number one, they maintain or or regulate inflammation throughout the body. Uh, So let's break that down. When someone... When your immune system is active, we talk about you know having a strong immune system. Around eighty to ninety percent of your immune system is located around the gut, and it's in constant communication with the the cells of the gut lining, and they're of course interacting with the the microbiota, the the different bugs and and yeast and viruses and parasites within your gut, and they actually in a way train the immune system. So that's a really, really important thing to remember. I would say that that's the the most important function of of the microbiome is they they regulate inflammation throughout the body. Now that's important because we hear about inflammation as being like a bad thing, but actually it's quite a natural thing. It, it's quite good. So when you have, let's say, a virus running around in the bloodstream, or you have a macro molecule of food mo- moving around in the bloodstream, what the immune system does, it sends some immune cells there, and they'll release like a like a poison in the form of inflammation basically to try and clear out that thing to fix it up in a way but when that goes unchecked so when let's say you have a leaky gut when you've got too much junk moving into the bloodstream that inflammation can become systemic so it goes around the entire body and it goes unchecked and that tends to stem back to an imbalance in your gut microbiome and it also will work from the intestinal permeability as well, the the integrity of your gut lining basically. And that comes to number two. So <clears throat> your microbiome regulates the health of your intestinal lining. They maintain intestinal integrity and they do that in a few ways. So a good way to explain your your gut lining is like a fly screen. And I use this explanation all the time. It's a wonderful working fly screen is meant to let in fresh air. It's meant to keep out the bugs and the dragonflies and the mosquitoes and all that sort of stuff. But if you've got holes and and tears in that fly screen, you're going to have those guys moving into the bloodstream. So you're going to have junk moving into the bloodstream. So when that happens, that's when we see inflammation start to occur. Now, I spoke with Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride about this uh, with the autism connection. And she said that when toxins leak from the gut into the blood and then cross the blood-brain barrier as well, that's when autism can occur 
can occur. So when the gut becomes a source of toxicity instead of nutrition, because of this leaky gut, then then it poisons the brain, basically, and it damages the developmental centers of the brain, which is a huge statement to make. But she's been working on that principle for for years now with tremendous success. And that all comes back to the balance of the different bacteria, viruses, parasites, and protozoans which live on and inside of you. So we talk about the microbiome as being, you know, a lot of people just say bacteria as a generalized term, but actually it's a lot more than bacteria. It's yeast, viruses, parasites, and protozoans as well. So they all come into play and some of them are commensal, so some of them are sort of uh, useless in a way, some of them are beneficial, some of them can be pathogenic, and uh, they all sort of work towards maintaining your gut lining and regulating inflammation. So the other two uh, pillars that they sort of work with, are they manufacture important chemicals for the brain. And those are things like serotonin, which we know is very important for um maintaining feelings of happiness but also learning and stuff like that as well uh it's it's been implicated i suppose with the with the depression equation although that's being looked at more now as a as an inflammation situation uh around 90 percent of your neuro uh, serotonin is actually manufactured in the gut by the gut microbes and not only that they also make b vitamins they make b12 there's uh, science even showing that they make a little bit of vitamin c which is pretty amazing you know previously we thought that they we had no way of getting vitamin c in the body unless it was from food so there's all sorts of things that they make bdnf is another one so brain derived neurotrophic factor that's that chemical that makes us feel really good when we exercise so um and that's been associated with increased learning potential, increased memory retention. That's actually manufactured by the gut bacteria. You know, they've done studies where they inoculate uh, sterile mice with um, uh, bifidobacteria. And they've shown that they've boosted their BDNF levels. That's that brain chemical that makes your brain really strong and able to learn. They've been able to boost it up by something like 30%. Like it's really, really cool. And the uh, fourth thing that they do, they digest and assimilate your food. So we've talked about that a long time. Hippocrates knew 2,400 years ago that all health began. He actually said all disease begins in the gut, but I think you know whoever took the quote forgot to write down the second half of that sentence. He also would have said all health begins in the gut too because it does. And we talked about digestion for a long time. You know, the raw food thing was huge, enzymes and all that stuff. A lot of people don't know that your body only has around 32 different enzymes anyway. Whereas the microbes can can contribute up to 6,000 enzymes to your enzymatic pool. So they are so integral to you digesting and assimilating your food properly. We talk about, you know, a lot of people have iron deficiency now or B12 deficiency and all that sort of stuff. If they these people had balanced microbiomes, that would not be the case because they would be absorbing it properly from their food. And plus, uh, bacteria also create a little bit of vitamin B12 as well. So those are really the key standpoints. And if you look at those four main pillars... Again, we'll go over them. They digest and assimilate your food. They uh, manufacture important chemicals for the brain. They maintain intestinal integrity and they regulate inflammation. If you look at those four things, they apply to everything in your life, really. So if you're trying to get healthy, if you want to detox the liver, but you've still got a leaky gut, you're just borrowing from Tom to pay Sam. You know, if, if you want to really deburden the liver, you've got to heal the gut lining because until you stop the junk moving into the bloodstream, the liver's always going to get backed up because it's always got to filter that junk out because it filters the body's blood supply. So, you know, liver liver detoxes can be good, by the way, but uh, until you heal the gut lining, you're not going to get that far. And I think that's the case with all diseases. Um, 
you are pushing something uphill <laughs> if you are trying to get healthy without balancing your gut. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this message because we can get all complicated and we can talk about MTHFR genes and, and cancer genes and all this different sort of stuff and exercise and blah, 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 which are all really important and have their place. But I think we're missing the main part, the main uh, factor in our health, and that is the gut. And it's been said for 2,500 years and over the last 100 years, we've finally had it confirmed by science. And that's why I'm very lucky to be here today. Yeah, awesome summary. So thanks for sharing that with us. So I wanted to move into the more practical side and certainly the, the five steps that are within the um, your book, within the Gut Healing Protocol. Um, just with the sort of, I guess, the reminder that what we're trying to do is obviously reduce that inflammation that you've um, covered but also um, encourage the healing process of the intestinal lining. So take us through the five steps that you have um I guess, you know, put together based on other research as to how we go about this process. Yeah, so a lot of my um, work comes from the work of other fantastic doctors around the world and researchers. So I do base a lot of my own work on them because I'm not the doctor. I'm just that guy in the middle, you know, making that message a little bit more friendly. So um, Dr. Kelman, Dr. Raphael Kelman, who wrote The Microbiome Diet, a fantastic book, he had four main steps in, in his um, guide to rebalancing the gut. And for me, I added in a fifth one. Number one, or oh, there are four R's basically. Number one, you've got to remove the infl inflammation within the gut. And you do that by rebalancing the gut bacteria or the gut microbes because this is an important distinction to make. There are bad bacteria or pathogenic microbes which can actually be good for you in the right concentrations. That's very important. So when we have something like... Uh, I suppose naturopaths and whatnot talk a lot about candida, which is, I think, a very uh, persistent problem with a lot of people. That's normally a beneficial bowel yeast. So that actually, that sort of species of microbe that's a yeast, it actually chews up heavy metals, it uh, chews up excess sugars within the bowel normally. But when you have an overgrowth, it can cause a lot of issues. It can burrow into the gut lining. It can release mycotoxins into the system. People can feel drunk because they produce all this acetylaldehyde and alcohol and um, all sorts of stuff goes wrong. So what we don't always have to remove all those pathogenic microbes. We just need to put them back in balance. And the way we put them back in balance is with probiotics, is with good bacteria because they have have mechanisms in place to actually keep those bad guys in check. So something like lactobacillus, for example, and bifidobacterium, they'll help keep uh, H. pylori in check, which we know from Dr. Martin Blazer is actually a naturally occurring common uh, species of microbe, speaks, uh, it's a bacteria, found in the human digestive tract. We've heard about H. pylori as being the stomach ulcer bug and it's this evil Napoleonic bacteria when he's actually shown that, and he's at New York University, so a very prestigious university, the chair of the medical department there. They found that um, H. pylori actually regulated appetite, so it helped you feel full, and it worked on training the immune system when it was in healthy levels. So bacteria have this interesting thing where it's called quorum sensing, where they can actually uh, detect how many, what, what their population density is in any given environment. So they're very simple, primitive organisms. They'll multiply and they'll multiply, but how do they know what's going on? Well, they release these little metabolites or messengers, um, little hormones, if you will, and different bacteria have receptors and they pick those up. 
So by reading those messages, they can find how many, they can determine how many of them are in the gut. And it's only when they reach a certain point that their pathogenic genes can be turned on. So let's say we have uh, 10,000 H. pylori bacteria in the gut and it's making up numbers here. That might be a beneficial um, number where we do experience those appetite regulating uh, effects and the immune system effects. But jump that number up to 100,000, that's when H. pylori might be able to cause uh, stomach ulcers and gastritis and all those sorts of things. Okay, we've tended to focus on the bad effects of all these different microbes. We've actually got to just appreciate that, that they're naturally occurring and we really want to rebalance them. So long story short, we want to remove and or rebalance the uh, microbes within our gut to one of a more positive microbiome. Now, for that, we've got to replace. We've got to replace the, um, or we've got to re-inoculate. That's another one, okay? So we've got to remove the inflammatory foods and the um, we've got to rebalance the, the microbes there and we've got to re-inoculate as well. And we've got to be a little bit specific with how we re-inoculate the gut, okay? Think about it as a garden. What you're doing, you're going to go in and you're just going to take out all the weeds, you're going to clean up the soil, and then you're going to put in a bunch of healthy microbes. Now, Dr. Kelman uses this example or this little um, analogy. If you've got a dirty fish pond, for example, do you just go in and throw in a bunch of healthy fish to try and clean everything up? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, you, you clean up the gut first. You clean up the environment first so that you give the best chance for those bacteria or those fish in the analogy to survive. So that's what we're going to do by removing the inflammatory foods like gluten and dairy and sugar. And it's not an argument against those industries. It's not saying those foods are evil. It just happens. It, um, it just so happens that those foods tend to be quite congestive and inflammatory on the gut. You know, you spoke with Alessio Fasano on the podcast. I'm sure he talked about intestinal permeability and gluten, it's a massive issue. So we've got to remove those foods and a couple of others. When we do that, we set up the environment for a healthy re-inoculation process. So we've cleared the garden basically. We've got all this healthy soil there. Now we're going to plant some seeds and we want to do that with specific microbes. The reason being is because when we were born, we were given specific microbes from our mum. Okay, because when we tumble through the birth canal, all these little bacteria get picked up and they go into baby's system. And they're called, this is a little bit technical, they're called segmented filamentous bacteria. They're just the first bacteria that enter the system, those first little seeds, basically. And they go into the baby and they say, look, immune system, just calm down for a moment. This might feel a little bit weird to you, but we're going to come in and we're going to set up shop because we're a reflection of how mum lived, we're a reflection of the environment she lived in, we're helping her thrive, we want to help you thrive. So normally the immune system might kick those bacteria out, might develop an immune response, but those initial bacteria, they go in, they suppress the immune system, they set up shop because baby has to have the same microbiome as mum because that will give the baby the best chance to survive in that environment. So it's a very intelligent way that nature sort of set this up. So the initial bacteria, according to people like Julia Enders, who wrote the book Gut, she's a microbiologist, the predominant bacteria that are come from mum are lactobacillus bacteria and bifidobacterium. 
Okay, so they're, they're very important to go to as an initial way for you to re rebuild your gut health. This is not saying that you can't down the line start to exper experiment with some wild fermentation and some apple cider vinegar and all these different kombuchas and all that sort of stuff. But initially, if you put those into the system, they can cause issues. You know, we, we see a lot of research on Saccharomyces boulardii. Now, Saccharomyces boulardii, if you see the research, there's also a large acknowledgement that Saccharomyces boulardii doesn't work in everyone and it can cause rashes and all this sort of other reaction stuff. And that's because even a healthy, beneficial yeast like Saccharomyces boulardii, if you've got leaky gut and your gut's not in a good condition, that can move into the bloodstream. It can become a fungus or a mold and can cause issues. It'll turn on the immune system and it'll screw things up. Basically, that can happen. So that's why we want to play it safe when we're putting in back in good bacteria. So we want to go with Lactobacillus species and Bifidobacterium species. And those I've sort of listed a bunch of those in the book and you can also um, Dr. Perlmutter, Dr. David Perlmutter he's got a big list of those as well that he talks about. So we're just getting a little bit specific about our re-inoculation process so the, the fourth, uh, the third R, uh, sorry, is uh, we've got to replace. We've got to replace the digestive fire, the enzymes and the hydrochloric acid. And that will naturally occur when we start having probiotics, okay, when we supplement with them and then down the line when we start consuming probiotic foods. Okay, so um, hydrochloric acid is a big one. We need that there because it's a sterilization agent. Because if you've got, you know, a parasite on your carrot that you haven't washed appropriately or you eat a leaf out the garden that you haven't washed, which I do all the time, your stomach acid is there to actually sterilize that, um, that food. So if you've got a little parasite on your carrot, which, you know, happens all the time, you know, you go to a salad bar and you have some salad, chances are there are some parasites on it. Okay, but your stomach, your hydrochloric acid just deals with those and they just pass through the system naturally. When people take things like antacids and all these acid suppressants, they're actually setting them, they're firing the guards of the castle, basically. They're setting themselves up for an infection. So that's really important to get back online and that will naturally happen when we reduce the inflammation in the gut, the hydrochloric acid production will turn back on. Okay, and the fourth R, uh, which is just eluding me right now, we've got um, we've got to remove, we've got to uh, what have we got? We've got to remove, we've got to re-inoculate, we've got to replace, and we've got to repair. Repair. Thank you. Thank you very much. I talk about this so much that I do forget. <laughs> Normally I've got slides with me as well. We've got to repair the gut lining. Probably the most important R anyway, so I shouldn't have forgot it. We've got to repair the gut lining. So that comes down. We've got to fix that fly screen. If you remember I was talking about the fly screen, it's got holes and tears in it at the moment. We've got to go along. We've got to repair that. We've got to encourage it to heal. And if you've had an infection for a while, you've got bad bacteria, microbes, maybe some fungus and yeast growing in the gut lining, that's going to take a while to clear out. You might have some biofilm and stuff. It's going to take a little bit of time to clear out, okay? And that will happen with a clean diet. But we also want to encourage the intestinal lining to heal through, um, through specific nutrients. And the ones that I go to, are colostrum and aloe vera. Uh, and you can sort of use those interchangeably because colostrum, we actually got from mum when we were born. Because we were born with a leaky gut, because we want mum's colostrum to go into the bloodstream, like all those growth factors and immune factors to go straight into the bloodstream. Once that occurs, though, the mum's colostrum, which is coming from the breast milk, obviously, at that stage, that, in, that tells the body to heal up the gut again. So it's going to shut down the leaky gut and it's going to tighten up those junctions. It's going to fix that fly screen basically and then we'll have a healthy mucus developing around the gut and that'll form the inner ecosystem for the rest of the baby's life. 
So we want to mimic that process and we can do that with colostrum, with bovine colostrum, okay? We're not uh, linking up mums to these breast pumps around the country in the name of Kale's gut healing protocol. It's bovine colostrum. I always get that question. So colostrum <laughs> is, <laughs> oh, well, people get a very confused look when I say colostrum. Isn't that breast milk is the question? <laughs> yes, it is. But colostrum is very similar. It's almost identical across most species. Okay, so we can use something like bovine colostrum, which is very readily available, to re, um, re-establish the health of that gut lining. We can stimulate the, the cells of the gut to heal, okay? And that final pillar is also very dependent on the, um, the aforementioned three R's there. So the remove, the replace, and the um, re-inoculate, okay? So the gut lining is only going to heal if you cover all those. So colostrum is very important for that. If anyone's sort of like um, super, super uh, allergic to uh, dairy, because uh, colostrum does still have a little bit of dairy in there, not much, then they can go to something like aloe vera. And that's been shown to be very anti-inflammatory uh, in the gut. And that'll actually help to, to heal the gut as well. Bone broth is very important for that too. On the protocol, we recommend people having bone broth every single day because that's got a lot of glutamine and nice healthy fats in there that'll help heal the gut too. The next question I get asked is what about supplementing with glutamine? The reason I'm not so excited about that is because I know that glutamine um, can feed cancer cells. Cancer cells can feed off glutamine to an extent and I don't like supplementing too much out of context there because it's such a, it's a single nutrient. It should be coming in, in context, in a food context. So that's my concern with that. But I know people have had success with that so I'm not going to bash it and all that sort of stuff. That's just what I believe. Okay, so we've got the four R's there. Number five, which is not an R, we've got E, we've got evolve. We've got to evolve the diet because if you're living on a very strict sort of, well, it's not very strict, but it's quite restrictive, the gluten-free, the sugar-free and the dairy-free diet for, you know, 10 years, then great. If you can do that and you're still feeling fantastic, that's great. But number five is evolve the diet because we want to bring in other foods now that previously might have been challenging for the body to deal with because we haven't had the probiotics in place. The the CSIRO has done a lot of research on things like resistant starch. Now, I tend to think they've done that research because it's a reflection of our agricultural industry, but we'll see as we sort of head into the future. I think it's still sort of initial research, if you will. But they're showing that resistant starch feeds our probiotics and our probiotics create Uh, beautiful essential fatty acids like butyrate and propionic acid um, as a response to or as a result of feeding off this resistant starch and that maintains the health of our gastrointestinal tract but if you have an infection if you don't have those probiotics in place first then that resistant starch isn't really going to feed anyone is it it's just going to pass through the system you're going to get bloated you might even feed things like candida and all these other pathogenic organisms when they're out of control so you've really got to balance the gut first and you know when we talk about fruit you know there's this whole thing about fruit potentially being bad for us and stuff your microbes love fruit that's fine you can have some berries you can go and and eat hopefully seasonally and organic um organically grown fruit and those the sugars in that will actually feed the microbes Microbes. And we've seen studies now that show that things like apple cider vinegar, um, the probiotics in there, actually help you balance blood sugar better because the probiotics presumably 
eat up the sugar as opposed to your system having to deal with it. So you can have some berries and you can not freak out about the carbohydrates. You can have some some white rice or some basmati rice or even some quinoa and not really freak out because you've got the probiotics in place. Now, so that's a massive key distinction to make. So when you reach that point where you start to experience abundant health, that's when you can evolve the diet. You can have your raw cake and your raw treats and your coffee and actually benefit from it. That's where we're going with this. So you don't need to go crazy, very, very strict paleo for your whole life to, to maintain your gut health. You've just got to establish it, re-establish it in the first place. Once you do that, you can be a little bit flexible with your diet. Um, when I finished my gut healing protocol, I started to evolve the diet. So I started to add in some some more carbohydrate-rich foods. And I still eat a v- relatively low-carbohydrate diet because that suits me and my body. But, you know, you can have a little bit of, um, you know, some, some gluten-free muesli and that sort of stuff. And you can actually feel good with that. So that's a key distinction to make. But, again, this all comes back to you just enjoying life. If you think about why you would want to get your gut into a state of health, you don't really necessarily have to think about, well, I just need to do it because everybody's talking about it. You know, the gut's a big thing at the moment. This is about you going and achieving your dreams. Think about why you want to get healthy in the first place. It's not to lose weight. Why do you want to lose weight? It's because you want to feel good when you take your shirt off at the beach and do handstands. You want to feel good when you're walking on the beach or you want to feel good walking your son down the aisle in 20 years' time. You don't want to be in the hospital bed. So have a think about that stuff. This is really what I'm passionate about. It's about getting people into a state of health that allows them to use health as a tool to achieve their dreams. And hopefully I didn't talk too much in that answer. Um, Obviously, that's what the book's for. You can go back to it again and again. But that's basically a step-by-step guide according to my research and according to the doctors and researchers that I've listened to on how to heal the gut. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the last point. I think, you know, it's really important for us to be able to look short term at some changes that we're going to make with the purpose of gut healing in mind, but then think about how we're going to make this a a lifelong strategy so that we, A, don't drop all the things or the wonderful things that we've introduced, but B, turn it into something that we can make a lifestyle and, as you say, live and enjoy the, the, the treats that we might um, you know, like to include on an occasional basis, and of course, work out what suits us. You know, there's a big section in the book where you um, go through, you know, what you can and can't eat throughout the the protocol. But the statement is made that you know you still need to be your inner nutritionist, where you can observe how individual foods affect you, whether positive or negative. Yes, absolutely. And that's absolutely key. If I tell, if I told people that eggs are perfect for everyone to have every single day, then that would just be negligent because eggs work fantastic for some people. Um, but some people are allergic to them, you know, and it's important to make the distinction between organic and non-organic eggs when you're getting tested for allergies to eggs because non-organic eggs have so many omega-6 fats, they'll cause an inflammation response. So, of course, you'll come up as allergic to eggs. But, you know, that sort of stuff is very important. And I always talk about the inner nutritionist, but I've called it the inner nutritionists now because they are the microbes. They'll tell you what to eat. They send messages up your enteric nervous system to the brain telling you what to eat. And when you have pathogenic bacteria in place, too many Firmicutes bacteria, which is like a species of bacteria associated with obesity and all this other stuff, if you have too many of those, you'll crave 
lots of sweets and sugars because that's what they feed off. Whereas if you have healthy, good bacteria in place, lots of lactobacillus bacteria, lots of bifidobacterium, lots of bacteroidetes basically, they'll help you crave healthier foods. So um, some low starch foods or some resistant starch foods. And you can listen to that when you start to get a little bit further down the line. Initially, I used to tell people like, God, just trust you're in a nutritionist and you'll be fine. But then I had lots of people coming back to me saying, Kale, it was great because my inner nutritionist the other day told me to eat a magnum and it was just fantastic. <laughs> so you've got to give it some time. You've got to rebalance your inner nutritionists before you can start to listen to them and, and trust them. But if you start getting, you know, um, phlegmy or whatnot after certain foods on the protocol, then of course you shouldn't eat them. Like if I have dairy, I get all, I get quite coffee. It tends to go into my throat. So if I have dairy, it's like straight away I'll get a little bit coffee. So I've got to be careful with how much colostrum I have because there tends to be a tipping point there. So just like that little insight hopefully can help people sort of overcome their scruples with, you know, being too diligent. A lot of people are too left brain these days and if it's written down on paper, they're like, I've got to follow it the, the way it's written and all that sort of stuff. And that's why throughout the book I do encourage people to really just listen to their bodies, take control of their health and um, look at this long term because like you said, if you're looking at something short term, you can be good for eight weeks and then go crazy for six weeks and undo all the work. Mm. Whereas if you look at this as a long term establishment of healthy living principles, then you're going to be much better off in a sustainable way. You're going to be healthy in a sustainable way. You're going to be able to go to that healthy breakfast every single day. You're going to be able to, you know, maybe incorporate some fasting. You may be going to be able to go for that run without feeling like you're punishing yourself and that sort of stuff. So I think a long-term relaxed approach and a smart approach, a minimum effective dose approach to maintaining our health is the best way to win. Yeah, absolutely. And so just with the nutritional side, I wanted to dive into just a couple of additional concepts. So the gut healing protocol is, you know, relatively low carbohydrate, um, moderate protein, you know, good fats and abundance of vegetables, which is exactly what we teach here at the Natural Nutritionist. So I do love that. Sweet. I just wanted to get a little bit of a reinforcement from you on your messages around carbohydrates, the carbohydrate myth, and certainly what you advise for high-level athletes. Yeah, so high-level athletes tend to, um, on the protocol, they tend to become quite fat-adapted, but they also tend to need a little bit more of a carbohydrate intake than the average sedentary person, which, again, is probably a good rule to follow anyway <laughs> across the board with any diet. You know, if you're sitting around all day not doing much, you don't really need that many carbohydrates. So um, high-level athletes do certainly need sometimes a little bit more sweet potato. Um, sometimes they can get away with a little bit of quinoa and stuff like that, but if they've really got gut issues, they've got to sort of restrict that to just your low sugar vegetables and get most of their um, vegetables from from them. Um, maybe they might be able to do like a little bit of coconut water or some berries and stuff like that in their smoothies just to help out because they're burning it so quick. Their, their blood cell turnover is very quick. Um, if they can turn over their whole blood supply in 30 days as opposed to the average person 120 days. So they tend to have a little bit of flexibility there. So they do need a little bit more carbohydrates. The carbohydrate myth that we're talking about is just the general one that we've been, we've been force-fed for so long, and that's that the human body requires these starchy carbohydrates to thrive. And that's not true. You know, we know that's not true now, and I'm very comfortable saying that because it's well backed up. Um, the body actually, in most cases, prefers to 
be in a state of semi-ketosis at least. It prefers to be fat adapted because that's just a survival mechanism. We're very used to now having food available three times a day at 8 o'clock, 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock and thinking that's completely natural. If you were in the wild before, you know, the advent of agriculture and all this stuff, you wouldn't have that, okay? So your body would actually need to adapt to a different fuel source because we know that after eight hours, your carbohydrate fuel sources are actually pretty much depleted anyway. So do you wake up after eight hours sleep dead? No, you don't, do you? Okay, because your body actually needs to know how to burn fat for fuel. And if it didn't, you'd wake up dead. You wouldn't be able to sleep longer than seven hours without eating. So this, this is a natural state for the body to be in. If you missed breakfast, perhaps you threw the spear and you missed the deer or you missed the kangaroo, um, you would need to be able to go without breakfast. So the body has beautiful tendencies and wonderful mechanisms in place to go into a mode of ketosis. And it's turning out through the research of people like, you know, Jimmy Moore is quite a good advocate for this, but also all the doctors he's interviewed and worked with. Um, Dr. Michael Russio is quite good and there are lots of others. They talk about the benefits of being in ketosis. Ketosis was used as a treatment for epilepsy for years, for, for, for years. It was the only known sort of um, therapy that worked well for epilepsy. So that's the whole carbohydrate myth. We do not need carbohydrates to thrive. Now, I believe that the body can definitely benefit from carbohydrates. The majority of the food on your plate, according to my research and according to um, Pete Evans and stuff, it should be carbohydrate. It just should come in the form of low-sugar vegetables and colorful vegetables. So we're not saying that carbohydrates are evil. We're just saying that be picky about where you get them from. And if you're going to trust the research and the word of people who are being funded by big agriculture, that's fine. You can go and do that, but don't expect to experience the best health that you possibly could um, because that's the unfortunate state of affairs that most of our nutrition and, and dietetics institutions and certainly the educational institutions are funded by agricultural companies, okay? And that's not evil or big food companies. It's not like this is a huge controversy and I'm not saying that anyone who's a nutritionist doesn't know what they're talking about. Not at all. I've worked with a lot of nutritionists who are onto this and we're just saying that the 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 overemphasis on on things like grains, on you know rice and pasta and bread and all these different carbohydrates that you know sugar my friends are firemen and their nutritional recommendations are horrific i cannot even begin to describe the food that they're encouraging them to drink and i'm talking about not just cereals and stuff i'm talking about gatorade coke lollies just to continually feed the body carbohydrates that is not a natural state to be in and if you're interested in long-term health uh, you would want to actually minimize those sort of carbohydrates in your diet because you're actually just playing around with your insulin levels which is going to lead to weight gain and then also just aging as well. You know, we hear about glycation a lot now. That's all linked to sugar consumption. So you basically your body doesn't need sugar to, to thrive, okay? It can survive off healthy forms of sugar. You know, we've got nature's got wonderful foods such as fresh fruits and hopefully you're getting those organically and se- eating them seasonally. And we've got, um, you know, an ancient food like even white rice, basmati rice, which can be healthy, I believe. Quinoa, you know, all these different carbohydrates, they can definitely be healthy but you know just because australia grows ridiculous amounts of wheat and we grow it in these 
for want of a better word, horrific soils, um, it doesn't mean that we have to consume it, okay, because it's generally not really a healthy food. It's not to say that wheat's evil and all that sort of stuff. Farmers aren't evil, okay. Um, It's just that if you're interested in maintaining long-term health, I don't think those foods are a part of a long-term healthy diet. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, the whole food carbohydrates are always going to be the best choice. So very good. The last co- uh, topic I wanted to cover with you was coffee. So I'll admit I was under the impression that coffee would have definitely been out for the eight weeks and I was very pleased to see that maybe it's not. <laughs> so take us through your thoughts on coffee and, um, you know, I guess open up so that our listeners can understand um that they're still going to be able to enjoy themselves on the eight weeks and then evolve the diet uh, once they're healed. Yeah, so a couple of things with coffee. There's a lot of research out there to show that it's actually quite beneficial for us. I think there's very little research to show that it's bad for us. Um, there's a little bit of research to show that caffeine can can stimulate um, an insulin response in the body, a bit of a stress response. So it, de- it always depends on who's consuming the coffee. You can't just say coffee's good across the board. If someone's got adrenal fatigue or they've, they've got other sorts of hormonal issues, then coffee may not be the best for them. The other thing I want to say is that if you're just buying coffee from wherever and just finding this random coffee source and it's it's sprayed heavily, it's got mycotoxins in it, it might have been um, artificially decaffeinated with hexane, which is a petrochemical, then that coffee is not going to be good for you. So this is not an excuse for you to just go and grab any single coffee. In the protocol, we talk about the benefits of good quality organic coffee that's not had, it's not drunk with um, sugar and it's not drunk with, with dairy, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, so if you're going to go and have a coffee, then we recommend having it after a meal as well because that actually slows down the absorption of that caffeine and stuff into the bloodstream and it will protect your gut as well because there is a lot of sort of, um, there's a line of thinking in the alternative space that coffee can irritate the gut lining. Um, certainly that's the case and it can cause a little bit of leaky gut. So you want to make sure that you've got food in there, you're adequately hydrated to actually protect the gut when you have some coffee. But, you know, there's a lot of research now on coffee to show that it's quite good for you, especially in terms of a microbial standpoint. They've found that the leftover coffee grounds in cafes has a lot of good bifidobacteria growing on it, which is pretty cool. Um, and... They've shown that coffee tends to stimulate the growth of, of healthy bacteria within your digestive tract. You know, they've done mice studies with that on, on mice producing a way bunch more essential fatty acids. So things like butyric acid, propionic acid, all those highly anti-inflammatory fats being increased with the consumption of coffee. So that's why coffee is included on the program as an option. Because people tend to freak out when you say no coffee as well. Um, and I suppose in an ideal world, you wouldn't need coffee to feel good, okay? Because I think some people uh, overuse coffee as a stimulant. I think if you require that coffee to get moving in the morning, that's a sign that you shouldn't be having it. And that's a sign that you need to actually focus on your health um, because you should feel energized anyway all the time. So coffee after meals is generally what we recommend, no more than one a day because we don't want to overstimulate the system and we don't want to overdo it in terms of the gut health. But I think certainly coffee as in maybe an almond milk latte or a coconut latte or just a, a, a long black or, or however you like your coffee as long as it's dairy-free and sugar-free, if you have that, it can certainly support the growth of good bacteria and can support gut health. Just make sure it's good coffee. Yeah, absolutely, and I think everyone's going to be pretty happy with that answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, something that I'll certainly enjoy including when I start the <laughs> protocol. 
<laughs> yeah, oh, good. I'm glad you're going to do it. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think the, the book has so much more within it. There's great advice around, you know, sleep and stress management, breathing and vitamin D. And it's a fantastic resource that, um, you know, we're not going to sort of go into any more detail today. I do want to refer our listeners to where they can grab a copy or, um, you know, certainly find out more. But before we do that, I just wanted you to share a couple of success stories, if you didn't mind, like just sort of general information as to what's happened with clients or people that have worked with you and done this eight-week protocol. Sure. Well, we um, people probably have seen, if they jump on the Facebook or the Instagram or whatever, um, which is uh, Kale Brock Health, they'll see the transformational photos. So obviously, we've had a lot of... Um, weight loss stories as well, which is a side effect of getting healthy. That's not the reason for the protocol. It's just a side effect of getting healthy because when you balance your blood sugar, when you decrease the inflammatory load on the body, which you do by um, balancing the gut health, you can drop weight quite easily. Uh, But beyond that, okay, beyond the amazing weight loss stories and all that sort of stuff, the big response has been an overall sort of relaxation of the body, not feeling like the body's in stress mode anymore. A couple of people um, couldn't sleep for a long time due to sort of digestion issues, digestive issues and all that sort of stuff. They found that they slept amazingly well on the protocol, which is huge because sleep is so important. They've also found that they've just been emotionally stable. That is a massive thing and I think that comes from not only balancing your gut health and optimizing the production of your neurotransmitters, it comes from becoming fat adapted and that's when your blood sugar is nice and stable. You have this steady flow of energy to the brain back and forth and you can actually feel in control. Um, At the start of the protocol, a lot of people came back with, oh, you know, I'm struggling with food cravings and stuff, which is normal, okay? As soon as you shift what you're eating, your bacteria can start to scream and whine and complain and they'll send cravings to you and you, you know, have all these weird food cravings. They went away after about three to four weeks. And one of the best things was that the healthy habits that people developed throughout the protocol, they were really easy for them to stick with, okay, because they they said they felt so good that they tied those good feelings with those healthy habits and they became quite habitual. So having a protein-based breakfast most of the time worked really well for everyone. They felt more stable. They weren't craving food by 11 o'clock. And, um, and again, having a nice sort of low-carb dinner or low um, starch dinner enabled them to sleep really well. And breathing before meals, doing a little breathing exercise before meals really helped them relax during a meal and taste their food and chew their food and digest their food because a lot of people don't do that because they eat in stress mode. I think um, one of the biggest stories that's probably closest to my heart is uh, my mum. So she did a, a ver- and this is powerful, she did a version, her own tailored version of the protocol, which included a little bit of champagne and a little bit of coffee. <laughs> Go mum. <laughs> Go mum. So she did that um, probably three or four years ago now and she had had knee arthroscopy, um, so micro, uh, sorry, keyhole surgery done a few times, you know, to quote unquote clean out her knee and you know which is which is pretty garbage in itself by the way as a side note I just interviewed Professor Ian Harris who is a surgeon in Sydney talking about the 
the quite often the useless approach that is keyhole surgery, especially on the knee. Anyway, mum had had that done and uh, her knee was blown up. She had this baker cyst growing on the back of her knee. She had it cut out three times basically in a cleanup of the knee. And within three months of doing this, you know, tailored Lynn version of the protocol, she, we had dissolved that growth, completely gone. And she went back to the doctor and, and the doctor said, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because we have no idea what's happened, but it's gone. Okay, so that story for me is the biggest because it's taken a situation that from the Western medical establishment is seen as probably hopeless, as recurring, as needing surgery for the rest of her life to one of empowerment and getting her back in control of her own health and her own body because as soon as you give up control of your body and you say that you're not in control anymore, you say that the doctor's opinion is more important than yours, then that's when I think we've got issues. It's the same with our food. If we're going to let everyone else grow our food and dictate what we eat, we're never going to be in control. So it's the same with your health and I think that has been the biggest thing for me. It's that people realize what good, what feeling good feels like because a lot of people don't even know what it is. When you're saying, wow, I feel lots of energy and stuff, it's so different for someone who has never felt uh, alive throughout their life. Okay, so if they've experienced, you know, poor health and health challenges throughout their life, they forget how good it feels to be healthy. And that reawakening of, of feeling healthy was probably the most powerful thing, the most uh, common thing across the board with people who did it. Yeah, some amazing stories. But I think your mum's story is a fantastic example because it's, you know, it's quite unique in, in the mm. fact that it's her knee and, and people usually think about gut as being digestion or weight loss or decreased bloating. But it really does show the systemic effect that gut health can have. Uh, and obviously the, the, the healing process can then have that positive effect anywhere and everywhere. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Mm, amazing. All right, so direct our listeners to your website where they can find out more and I'll pop all the links in the show notes. Yeah, well, everything can be found on kalebrock.com, which is just K-A-L-E-B-R-O-C-K.com. I didn't change my name. I've been called Kale since when I was born. So, you know, I've already getting a lot of emails about that as well. Um, yes, I was born that way. If you want to go straight to the book page, it's just kalebrock.com.au forward slash gut healing protocol. But everything's on the homepage as well. And you can get a free little guide there too. And on the social media intrawebs as well, um, which is just at Kalebrock Health. So super easy stuff. Awesome. And I've been meaning to ask you that. I actually didn't know if that was your real name. <laughs> so now the mystery is solved. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, the, it's the real name. It's on my birth certificate. There you go. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I'll um, direct our listeners to the show notes straight away. They can head there and find out more. And stay tuned for Kale. I'm sure you'll be back on the show in the very near future. Yeah, yeah. And I look forward to uh, speaking with you on my show too. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. Awesome. Cheers. No worries. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.